All right, once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We have been working our way through Matthew's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we enter into a new chapter, chapter 13. And chapter 13, as we're going to see, marks a dramatic change in in the teaching style of Jesus. Up until this point, his teaching has been very simple and straightforward. But starting in chapter 13, he now begins to hide the truth of God from those who have repeatedly rejected it, as he now gets into teaching using parables. The word parable comes right out of the Greek as a transliteration of the Greek word parabole, and it means to cast or lay alongside. And the idea is a parable signifies an earthly story that's kind of laid alongside a spiritual truth to help illustrate it. And that's usually the point of a parable, to help illustrate spiritual truth. However, in Matthew 13, we're going to see that Jesus is going to use it, for the most part, not to reveal, but to hide spiritual truth. We'll see how that works in a moment. Now, as we get into the subject of parables, I need to tell you that a lot of Christians get into trouble with parables because they go to parables first to form their doctrine from. And what happens typically is, they will try to push a parable to the nth degree and try to assign some spiritual meaning to every little detail. And when they do that, they come up with faulty conclusions and really false doctrines. You've got to be very careful that you do not do this. Parables are just simple stories, often real-life stories, that are designed to teach one or two basic truths. So you can't push it and assign something to every little detail because you're going to get messed up, all right? And I've heard Christians come up with some very bizarre uh, interpretations of parables and some very dangerous applications of that interpretation, all because they didn't understand the basics of parables and tried to assign meaning to every little detail. And, you know, that's why Jesus said the kingdom of God is what? Like. Okay? He didn't say exactly like, he said is like. Uh, he wasn't trying to teach a specific doctrine, just simply to illustrate a spiritual truth. Now, as I said, parables are often used to reveal truth, but they can also be used to hide truth. And I think that's really the issue here. In fact, we're going to see that clearly in chapter 13. But there comes a point with certain individuals when because of their continual rejection of God's truth, that the opportunity to understand his truth is withdrawn from them or withheld from them by God. If they demonstrate that they love darkness rather than light, as Jesus said, many in the world do love darkness rather than light, John chapter 3. But if these folks prove through constant rejection of the gospel that they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, at one point God removes the light. And now all that remains is darkness, or in other words, deception. And I think a prime example of this is going to be when the Antichrist makes his appearance on the world scene. You all remember what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 11. He said, The coming of the lawless one, title for the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. 
So if you love darkness rather than light, if you continually reject God's truth, at one point God says, you know what, you don't want truth. You don't want my truth, you don't deserve my truth. So God says, for those who would not receive the love of the truth, the gospel, that they might be saved, God eventually withdraws the ability to understand, and all that's left is darkness. And the Antichrist will then lead them into the ultimate deception. But listen, Jesus never hid spiritual truth from those who were open-hearted and spiritually receptive. In fact, to all who responded to his invitation back in chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. For all those folks who received, uh, who accepted that invitation and came to him, well, he continues to reveal himself and the truth of God. For them, parables will enlighten. But for those who continually harden their hearts against the truth of God, like the scribes and Pharisees, now you might say God is going to turn off the lights. And when Jesus started to teach in parables, this was such a radical departure from his normal teaching style that his disciples came to him in verse 10 and said to him, you know, Lord, why do you speak to them in parables? What's going on? What happened? Your teaching was very simple and straightforward up until this point. Now you're speaking cryptically. You're kind of, you're, you're hiding truth. That's right. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In other words, it's been given to you guys because your hearts are open. And anyone whose heart is open and, and is open to receiving God's truth, they'll understand. But those who are hard-hearted, who mock the truth, who try to persecute the truth, you know what? Now the light is being withdrawn from them. He talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this refers to revealed truths of the kingdom that Jesus is now making known to those who have an open heart. The word mysteries is the plural form of the Greek word mysterion, which literally means something that was hidden but is now being revealed. It's often used in the New Testament of something that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but now God is making known. And that's what mystery, it's not a mystery like we would understand it, like nobody knows, okay? No, it's something that was hidden but is now being revealed. And Matthew 13 contains seven parables, all having the same basic theme, the kingdom of God, which is why they're called the kingdom parables. The kingdom of heaven is an expression that is unique to Matthew's gospel. It appears 32 times. Uh, it is a phrase used by Jesus to speak, listen, of the visible church on earth. Now, the visible church is simply those people who go to church and, you know, they walk into a church building on a Sunday morning, we'll say. It's visible. People see uh, them attending church. The visible church is a lot bigger than the invisible church. The invisible church is simply those folks who belong to Jesus, who are really Christians. They're called the invisible church because, you know what? It's something that happens in their hearts. Now, those who are part of the invisible church, who are truly Christians, we go to the visible church, don't we? So all invisible church members go to church. But not everybody who goes to church is part of the body of Christ. Amen. And we know that. And that's why in these parables, Jesus primarily singles out the visible church on the earth, remembering that it includes both genuine Christians and false Christians. Some of these parables, a couple of them, I think in particular, I think have more of Israel as the focus. But again, looking at Israel in terms of true Jews, in the sense those are, have received Messiah and are saved, and those Jews who think they're saved but have not received Messiah and are not really God's people. 
So Jesus has just gotten done talking to a, co- a group of these folks, right? The scribes and Pharisees. These folks thought they were saved. They thought they were really children of God. Why? We're descendants of Abraham. We've been circumcised. We're in. And Jesus wanted them to know you can have religion but not have a relationship. And so with that, that's the context of what he is now going to be talking about. It's just important that you understand that these parables are, are kind of talking about the gospel going out into all the world and how some people really receive it. Other people think they've received it. But in the end, God's going to sort it all out. Who really belongs to him, who doesn't? We see this in the parable of the wheat and the tares in verses 24 to 30 and then verses 36 to 43. We see it in the parable of the mustard seed, verses 31 to 35. And then, of course, uh, the parable of the net or the actual the drag net in verses 47 to 52. All right, let's just jump in. Verse 1, it says, Now on the same day, this would refer you back to chapter 12, and remember the context. Jesus has just gotten done with a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, those folks who thought they were true Jews, who thought they were on their way to heaven because, after all, they were children of Abraham and circumcised. But they were false believers. They thought they were right with God. Jesus made it clear from verses 22 to the end of chapter 12, they were not really saved. They were phonies. And so on that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Now this would be the Sea of Galilee. He's up in the Galilee region. And a great mul- great multitudes were gathered together to him, so he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Now, he's going to launch into these parables. We're only going to get to the first one today, which is the parable of the sower. And so we see, first of all, in verses 3 through 9, the parable of the sower presented, and then in verses 18 to 23, the parable of the sower explained. So let's read, starting in verse 3. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because there was no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground, and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that last statement is Jesus talking now not to the whole multitude, but only those who have open hearts. In other words, Jesus is saying, those of you who have open hearts, listen to what I'm saying, because God will give you grace to understand. Now, as Jesus told the story of the sower, since he was up in the Galilee, which is a rich farming area, it could be, it's possible, that as he began to share this first parable, there might have been a man who he pointed to who was at that moment sowing seed in his field. Could be. Wouldn't have been too far-fetched. But even if not, they all understood farming. And they had all seen farmers with their seed bags slung over their shoulder walking up and down the furrows of their fields, taking handfuls of seeds as they went and casting them on either side of the furrow, sowing their seed or sowing their field with seed. Very common uh, imagery. They all knew that. And they all knew that as a farmer, because they lived in an agrarian culture, they all knew farming. And they knew that as the farmer cast the seed on the field, 
it would typically fall on four different kinds of soil. They all knew that. And Jesus points it out here. He wasn't telling them anything. They didn't already know. But now he's going to use a common everyday occurrence to illustrate a very important spiritual truth. And so there are four kinds of soil that the seed could potentially land upon. The first one he mentions is the wayside soil. When broadcasting, and that's what it was, they were broadcasting. It's interesting, that's where our term broadcasting comes from. The Greek word of sowing, all right? And, of course, Christian broadcasting is simply that. It's sowing the seeds of God's word. Um, when the farmer was broadcasting seed by hand, it was really impossible to control the accuracy completely. And uh, so some of the seed was bound to fall on this wayside soil. What was this? Well, these were the narrow paths that separated the fields. Farmers would walk on these to get from one field to another. Travelers would walk on them as they journeyed from one part of the country to another. Now, you can well imagine with all the foot traffic that these pathways endured. They were dirt paths, of course. And since there was constant foot traffic, you know, pounding down the soil... Uh, and, of course, in that part of the country in the summer, it's very hot. So the sun baking down on, this, on these dirt pathways, they were like concrete. And so consequently, any seed that happened to fall on this wayside soil, these pathways, well, it couldn't penetrate the soil. And therefore, it couldn't take root. So what happened was it just lightened the surface. And it was easy for birds to then get at and eat these seeds, which they did as the farmer moved a little bit farther down uh, his field. They would typically swoop down and pick off these seeds first. Well, the second type of ground which Jesus said some of the seed fell upon was what he called stony places where they did not have much soil. And you have to understand that stony does not refer to loose rocks because farmers would always remove all rocks, sticks, and other debris from the field before sowing it. In fact, uh, I think I've told you, we were in Israel uh, the last time we went. Uh, we were up in the Galilee farming area in our tour bus going to some place. And as we <clears throat> were uh, going, uh, the guide pointed out as we look out the window that a farmer had prepared his field for seed. And it, what he did was he took all the loose stones and piled them up in piles. It's a lot of rocks in Israel, okay? Uh, piled all these stones up in piles, getting ready to sow the field. And typically, because there's often so many field stones in a given area of the of ground, they would sometimes take those field stones and use them to build stone walls around their fields as well. The point is, Jesus understood this. He, he wasn't talking about loose stones and rocks in the field, because he knew the farmers always went through and they cleared all that out before they planted their fields. Instead, what he's referring to was the underground bedrock that runs beneath the soil throughout the land of Israel. This limestone bedrock was often buried deep under the soil, but every once in a while in certain places it would jut up where it was only about five or six inches from the surface of the soil. And the seeds that fell in this area of ground, when they germinated, the roots would begin to grow downward, of course, but they would soon hit that limestone bedrock. They couldn't go any deeper, and so all the growing energy was then directed upwards. Well, what that did was, of course... It made these plants spring up quickly, and they dwarfed all the other plants around them and made them look healthier and hardier than the rest of the crop that was sown in that field. But listen, as summer got closer and the sun got hotter, these plants, because their roots couldn't go down very far, well, they had no way of reaching down deep enough into the earth 
to absorb moisture, and therefore they withered and eventually they died. The third type of ground on which some of these seed fell was what Jesus called thorny soil. And this refers to the ground that had been cultivated and prepared to receive seed, but hidden in the soil. Unbeknownst to the farmer were these very small, fibrous roots of weeds, thorny weeds. I mean, those of you who are gardeners uh, know that you can work your best to clear out uh, weeds from your garden. But no matter how hard you try, there's always that little root system, sometimes very fine, fibrous, and those weeds will always come back, won't they? And that's the problem. And Jesus said, once the grain began to sprout in this thorny area of soil, so did the thorns. Now, plants that are indigenous to a piece of ground are always much stronger than those plants that are introduced into that piece of ground from an outside source, right? I mean, let's face it, you're in the weeds territory. This is where they live. They have, you know, really a system of roots in that soil and you do your best to clear them out, but they're there. And so once both the crops and the thorns begin to sprout, well, guess what? The cultivated crop never stood a chance, okay? Because, again, the weeds, the weeds that was their territory. They had a foothold. The tough thistle-bearing, that's what they were, thistle-bearing or thorn-bearing weeds, well, they came up and they choked out the good plants by taking most of the space, moisture, nourishment, and sunlight for themselves, and they just overwhelmed and choked out the good seed. And the fourth type of ground on which some of the seed fell was good soil. It was away from the path, so in other words, the soil was nice and loose and soft. It had sufficient depth so that the plants could get their roots down deep enough and survive. It was free of weeds. And so all of these combined to produce a favorable condition, whereas Jesus said, these seeds that fell on this good ground produced a crop, some 100, some 60, some 30-fold. Now, fortunately for you guys, you don't are not at the mercy of Pastor Phil's interpretation. Okay, Jesus himself explained the meaning of this parable, which we're all thankful for, and he is going to now give us the explanation. All right? And that starts in verse 18. He said, Therefore... Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Now, when he talks about the word of the kingdom, he's referring to the gospel. And now he's beginning to tell us that the different types of soil really refer to different types of hearts into which the gospel is sown. He explains the wayside soil, which is representative of a hard heart. This is the person who hears the word of the kingdom or the gospel and does not understand it. Why don't they understand it? Is it not easily understood? No, a child can understand the gospel. The idea is the reason this person doesn't understand it because they don't really want to understand it. Their heart is so hard that, you know, they're not really interested is the idea. You know, they, they won't even ask you, well, can you explain that a little bit? Or what exactly does that mean? They don't care. Their heart is so hard. That's why they don't grasp what the gospel is really all about. It's a lot of unbelievers who think they know what the gospel is all about, who think they know what Je who Jesus is and what he did, what it means to be a Christian. They think they know, but they don't. They're clueless. They are what the Old Testament calls stiff-necked and rebellious. These folks are unconcerned with the things of God, completely indifferent 
to anything spiritual. Maybe you, you have come across some of these folks as you have gone out there sowing the seed of the gospel. You know, you've run across those people where you try to witness them about spiritual things, and they shut you down immediately. I mean, to them, that is stupid foolishness. They're just not interested in the gospel at all. And because they have constantly rejected it, well, their heart has gotten harder and harder. Remember this teaching we did on the um, unforgivable sin out of chapter 12, uh, around verses 31 and 2, I think, uh, where we talked about how that uh, the unpardonable sin, also known as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, is not one sin. It's a process that leads to a conclusion. And that is a person keeps hardening their hearts to the gospel, hardening their hearts to Jesus Christ, keeps rejecting. Every time they do, their heart gets a little harder, a little harder, until finally their heart becomes so hard it's now hopeless for them. The opportunity to be saved is gone. And that's the idea with this kind of a person. They have rejected the gospel so many times their heart has become now impervious to the gospel. And so without being able to penetrate this person's hard heart, well, any other time it's presented after it becomes so hard, the gospel won't even penetrate. As soon as they hear it, the devil comes, swoops down, and just kind of takes it out of their heart. They don't even give it a second thought. One author said about this kind of person, he said, and I quote, his lack of repentance or any or of any sense of guilt and shame insulates him from God's help and leaves him utterly exposed to Satan's attack. His heart has never been softened by remorse, never broken up by conviction of sin, never cultivated by the smallest desire for anything good, pure, and holy. This kind of person is the fool who hates wisdom and instruction, as Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 talks about. And who says there is no God, like the person that Psalm 14, verse 1 speaks of. He is self-sufficient, self-satisfied, and often self-righteous, end quote. All right, well then Jesus went on to explain what the stony soil meant. In verse 20 he said, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So the stony soil represents the superficial or shallow heart. And this soil really represents the person who hears the word and immediately receives it with great joy. I mean, as a pastor, I've seen this over the years, where somebody will be in church for the first time, will say, and I happen to be giving a message on the gospel. And they're just moved with emotion. They hear it. You know, maybe they've been living lonely lives or empty lives or they're hurting in some way and somebody dragged them to church and they just don't know where to turn because their life is so empty and meaningless and they're just sad, depressed people. And so they're dragged to church. They hear a message about God's love and God's forgiveness and Jesus Christ. And immediately they're like, that's what I need. I need Jesus. You know, I want that kind of joy. I want that kind of peace. So as soon as we give the altar call, they almost run to the front here. And as I'm praying with them to receive Jesus, they're crying. The tears are running down their cheeks. And people looking on at this thing think to themselves, wow, has God really gotten a hold of their heart? And you know what I'm thinking? Maybe. I've seen this before. And Jesus talked about this very thing. Those people who hear the gospel and have a rush of emotion Come forward, receive it with great joy, right? I mean, this is the answer to my felt needs. This is what I've been looking for. And they have a great emotional response, which is immediate, positive, 
And this person hits the ground running. I mean, boy, they are so excited. They're in church all the time. They're talking to everybody about Jesus, right? You've seen these kind of people. Their commitment kind of dwarfs everybody else in the church. You look at this person and go, wow, this person put me to shame. I wish I had the kind of relationship with God they've got. And boy, they look like they're just shooting up in their walk with God. They are just really, you know, you look at that and go, that's amazing. Until persecution comes. See, that's the thing. These are the kind of folks that have, there are people among us who are very emotional people. That doesn't make them bad. It just makes them emotional. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with being an emotional person, but you have to be careful because sometimes these kind of folks let their emotions lead. And that's what happens with these kind of folks. They come to church. They're kind of lonely. They're sad. They're empty. They hear about Jesus, and they have an emotional response. They don't think through the costs. They don't really count the costs and try to ask themselves, what is this going to mean? Do I understand what I'm getting myself into here? I'm going to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior. What is that going to mean to my friends? How are they going to react to that? My family? My job? Uh, What is that going to mean in the way of this or that? No, it's all emotion. And they come forward. They pray to receive Jesus. And they're so excited for a while. They just, man, their, their walk just shoots up. And yet, as soon as the persecution comes, well, you know, it's always been about how Jesus is going to make me feel. Persecution, uh, that doesn't make me feel so good. So, you know what? I think maybe I'm going to just forget about this Jesus thing. And that's what happens. They hang out for a while, but, you know, the persecution causes them to take off. Again, one commentator said with regard to this kind of person, because the soil of this person's heart is shallow, he has no firm root in himself. The gospel prompts an immediate positive reaction but it is temporary. And all the change is on the surface rather than in the depths of his heart. His feelings were changed, but not his soul. When this person hears the gospel, it brings a religious experience, but it does not bring a salvation experience by the fact that when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately this person falls away. He has come to Christ for what he thought he would get in the way of personal benefit, But when confronted with a high cost of salvation, well, he will not pay the price, end quote. And we see these kind of folks everywhere. The third soil, the thorny soil, Jesus explained this way in verse 22. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. So the thorny soil represents the worldly heart. Jesus said this third piece of soil is infested with thorns, with weeds. And it represents the man who hears the word of the gospel and receives it, but his heart is really too worldly for it to take root and to bear the fruit of salvation. You know, his so-called profession of faith isn't genuine. And so it takes a backseat to his first love, which has always been for the things of this world. And eventually... The cares of this life choke out whatever token faith he had, and he falls away from church, falls away from the Lord. Look, as I said before, we talked about these these weeds. Their roots have really taken over a piece of ground. So any kind of cultivated crop into that piece of ground is not going to stand a chance against the 
roots of the weeds that are already there. That's their territory. They're indigenous to that piece of ground. Just like a worldly heart could come to church, hear the gospel, and begin to change a little bit, but if their heart is not really given over to Christ, the things of the world are still deeply entrenched in their hearts. And you can introduce new faith into that heart, but if it is a heart that's not given over to Christ, really, well, eventually, you know, the cares of this life, that's their territory now, they're going to choke out whatever little faith this person had. A very important point. And let me just say this. There are few barriers greater, few barriers to the gospel greater than the love of riches and of the world. That is a very strong deterrent against the gospel, even for those people who come to church. And here's the thing. You could come to church and hear the gospel and, again, believe in your heart this is what you really need. And yet if you're not willing to give up the world... It'll never take root in your heart. Like the rich young ruler who came to Christ one day and said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, "The money, your money is on the throne of your heart. Uproot it, get rid of it, give it away, come follow me. You'll, be, you'll have riches in heaven forever. He went away sorrowful because he was not willing to give up his earthly riches. A person might understand they need Jesus, but understanding with your head and really giving him your heart is two different things. And I'll tell you what, we see this all over the place. In fact, this was the case with one of Paul's own co-laborers in the gospel. Remember Demas? Demas was on Paul's missionary team. Demas accompanied Paul uh, for years on his missionary endeavors. And yet the end of Paul's life is he's writing from that Mamertine prison in Rome before he, right before he was about to be executed. He writes to Timothy one final letter. We've been studying in that letter on Wednesday nights. Remember what he said in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10? And Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. There's a lot of people who are like Demas. They come to church, and maybe they even get in the ministry for a while. I've had heard more than one story of a pastor or his wife who, after serving the Lord for a certain amount of time, said, you know what? My heart's not in this anymore. And what they do is they go back to the world, because that's really where they're of. One author said about this kind of person, and I quote, A person who comes to church but never becomes committed to serving, who is continually preoccupied with money, career, fashion, sports, and everything but the Lord's work is a person with a weed-infested heart. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12:15? He said, Look, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. Earthly riches are short-lived. That's why Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, there are those in the church today who have found a way to sanctify greed. And they would tell you that if you're really spiritual, you would understand God wants you wealthy. In fact, Christianity's whole goal is for you to be wealthy. And Paul addressed this in 1 Timothy 6. There are those who think that godliness is a way to get rich. He says, don't even hang out with those people. I'm going to out to lunch. Godliness with contentment is great wealth. Because it's certain one thing Paul said. We carry nothing into this life and we can carry nothing out. So if we have food and clothing, let us be content. Because those who keep pursuing after riches, guess what? You're going to become a dartboard for the devil. You're going to be pierced through with many sorrows. And Paul says, you know what? The love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's neutral. You can use your money for God and be blessed. 
Or you can pursue wealth, pursue wealth, it's all you think about, it's what gets you up in the morning, material things, money and so on. And you know what? It's, you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose your faith, you're going to lose everything that's important. You're going to pierce yourself through with many sorrows. The deceitfulness of riches is the idea. And then finally, the Lord says in verse 23, but he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. He understands it, by the way, because he has a heart to understand it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So the good soul represents a receptive and sincere heart. Look, the only barrier to salvation is unbelief. And anyone who is willing to accept Jesus Christ on his terms, and that's so important, on his terms, not on my terms. The rich young ruler wanted to accept Jesus on his terms. God won't let us do that. You either come to him on his terms or you don't get there at all. You've got to go through Jesus. That's number one. But you've got to go through Jesus understanding there's a cross in it. It's a life of self-denial. It's not, yeah, I'll have God, but I want all the goodies he gives too. I want all the health and wealth and mansions and cars and so on. But those who come to Jesus on his terms, well, their hearts are good soil. There's nothing, there's no barrier that will keep them from becoming saved. Now, let me just say this so we kind of wrap it up. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody teach this parable this way. I have. I've heard pastors interpret this parable. This is where you get into trouble. If you're, if you're not careful, this is where you get into trouble in your interpretation of a parable, and then the way you apply it uh, leads to some faulty doctrinal conclusions. So a lot of pastors who teach this parable this way. The hard-hearted person. Well, they're the flattered unbeliever. They reject the gospel. That's easy. The good soil. Well, that's the person who receives the gospel, becomes a Christian. That's easy. It's those middle two <laughs> that become the problem. The shallow soil and the thorny soil heart, right? Now, you have a lot of people who interpret these two as Christians. As Christians who are carnal. Okay, I've heard pastors say, well, three out of the four hearts receive Christ. One full-on commitment. Wayside heart, hard heart, we know they're unbelievers. They, they reject it. But that, you know, shallow heart and that thorny, you know, worldly heart, they're Christians but just carnal. Well, let me ask you this. Who in this room thinks when the gospel goes out into the world, three out of four people receive it and get saved? Folks, I don't think that those two middle hearts are genuine Christians. Oh, yes, but they grew and were starting to produce something. It was, it was foliage, you know? So what? What's the point of agriculture? Foliage or fruit? Did Jesus say you'll know them by their foliage? So you'll know them by their fruit, right? Hey, look, people can come to church hear the gospel, hang out with you folks who love the Lord and are into the Word, filled with the Spirit, and as they hang around with you, they can begin to look like they're growing. Don't push the parable to the nth degree. Just a simple idea the Lord's communicated. Not everybody who comes to church and calls me Lord is really saved. We talked a couple weeks ago. Remember the message we talked about? Reformation versus regeneration? Reformation is simply a person who comes to church and begins to clean up their life a little bit because they hang out with Christians, but hasn't really received the Lord, and eventually they go back to the world because that's really all they know. Same thing with these two hearts. A person can receive, can come to church, and pray to receive Jesus. A lot of people have done that. But because 
they fear persecution. They don't want, you know, if Jesus is going to give them a happy life, that's great. But if I get to suffer for him, uh, I'm, I'm not into that. Or as a person comes to church and maybe receives Christ or prays to receive him, we begin to talk about taking up your cross, denying yourself, following in Jesus' footsteps, and they're thinking, world or Jesus, world or Jesus. Nah, I want the world. And they eventually leave. You're going to tell me those two kinds of people are saved? Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't genuine Christians who are kind of shallow and worldly, all right? There are. But those are not what Jesus is talking about in this parable. I mean, we read this and go, well, gee, I think I am a little worldly. I mean, things are a little too important to me. I don't really, you know, deny myself like I should and follow Jesus like I should. Hey, repent and make some changes. But those two hearts are not speaking of genuine Christians. They are counterfeit Christians. They are counterfeit Christians. And I'll tell you what, guys. Counterfeit or phony Christians make up more of a segment in the church today than you may realize, especially in these last days. You know, Paul talked about this. And not just Paul, Jesus, and the other apostles. They talk about this in the New Testament epistles and so on. Paul said that he, he warned us about this last day's deception. It was around in his day, but he said it was going to really reach monumental proportions in our day or the last days. We believe Jesus Christ is coming back at any time. Well, they believe that too. But now we see a lot of things lining up that point to his second coming. And we know the rapture precedes the second coming by at least seven years. And therefore, if we see the signs of his second coming getting near, well, then we know the rapture is getting that much closer. But this, this last day's deception, um, there's a lot of people, as I said, who, who think they have uh, embraced the true Christ and are saved. A lot of this is being fueled by preachers in these cults who preach, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, they preach another Jesus in a different gospel. These would be the cults who deny Christ's divinity, deny his bodily resurrection, uh, deny other things about his person and mission. They are preaching another Jesus. He's not our Jesus. And Paul said in Galatians 1, if anyone preaches any other gospel than the one I've given to you to preach, let them be accursed. So there's a lot of cults running around. And again, this would be indicative of the last days. As Jesus even said in Matthew 24, the time just before his return would be characterized by unprecedented worldwide spiritual deception. It's a sign of the times. But then you also have characters out there on TV and radio who are preaching a gospel that feeds into all these worldly desires. Desire for wealth, prosperity, and so on, as we've just talked about. And this is a gospel that has deleted the core of what the gospel is all about, the cross. You know, the gospel today has is, is become very man-centered. It's not the true gospel, obviously, because the true gospel is cross-centered and Christ-centered. So if you, you have people preaching today, though, that know they can build big ministries and large churches by preaching to felt needs, by telling people what they want to hear, very thing that Paul said in Second Timothy 4, uh, the time would come when people in the church would not want to hear sound doctrine, but would gather to themselves teachers who would tell them what they want to hear. We're seeing that today everywhere. And these characters, it's all man-centered. How much God's going to do for you? What God's going to give you in the way of blessings? Material things. The message of the cross has been deleted. And Jesus said, if you don't take 
up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciples. So there's a lot of people in the church today who are deceived into thinking they're right with God when they really aren't. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 7, these folks, these counterfeit Christians, are going to stand before him someday on the day of judgment, and he's going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And they're going to be shocked that they're not going to heaven because they were deceived. They believed the lie was truth. But they were going to be sent away because they didn't really have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. But then there are those who have good and receptive hearts, just like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And guys, let me just say this. This is, I think, one of the points of the parable Jesus gave here. I mean, let's think about this for a second. If we had been there when Jesus gave this parable and said, look, you're going to go out there and sow the seed, okay, of the gospel. You're going to run into hard hearts. They're going to just reject it, probably beat you up, okay? You're going to run into those who have shallow hearts and those who have worldly hearts. They're going to look like they've received the gospel, but after a while they're going to split. But you're going to have some who have good hearts. Now, how would you have interpreted that? Would that have encouraged you or discouraged you a little bit? Probably discouraged you, right? But I think Jesus was trying to encourage us, look, there's good soil out there. Don't give up. There's good soil out there, good hearts. Cornelius, not that Jesus was talking about Cornelius, but we know Cornelius was one of these kind of people. He had a sincere and receptive heart to the things of God. In fact, we read in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it says there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms, gift of money to the poor generously, and prayed to God always. It's amazing how religious a person can be and still be unsaved. Do you see that here? Here's a guy who understood the God of Israel. He feared the God of Israel. He was devout towards the God of Israel. He gave gifts to the poor. He actually helped the Jews build a synagogue. He was very, very much favorable to the God of Israel. Although he didn't know the gospel, he was living up to the light that he had. He had a good heart in the sense he was open. He just didn't have all the information he needed. And folks, I believe Cornelius is an example of a man, example of a man who lived up to the light that God had given him. And because he was faithful to it and received it and was trying to act accordingly, God got him enough light to be saved. God will never send anybody to hell who wants to go to heaven, who acts faithfully on whatever truth they have. God will get them more truth. I'm convinced if he has to send an angel from heaven to knock on their door to give them the truth, what they need to get saved, he will do that. Look, I believe that there are a lot of people in this world who are like Cornelius. They're not atheists or agnostics. You know, they're, they're not overtly wicked or immoral people. They're, they're loving people, good parents, faithful spouses, law-abiding citizens who believe in God and yet really don't understand what it means to be born of the Spirit and therefore heaven-bound. And that's where we come in. We have to sow the true gospel in this world. We have to show them it's not about what God's going to do for you. It's not about this or that. It, it's about who Christ is, what he did, how he's calling us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him once we receive him. It's about going into the world themselves and sharing the truth and facing opposition and persecution and maybe even martyrdom. Are you ready for that? That's the true gospel. And we have to be faithful in declaring that gospel. Because a lot of people in the church today, guys, 
they are not faithful. I mean, come to my church. You want to be happy? You want to be fulfilled? Come to my church. My pastor never gives any negative messages. Always positive. Wow. That's great. Always positive. Wonderful. Well, you know what? Jesus said, if you don't likewise repent, you will all likewise perish. I don't know if that's negative. It's true. It's true. So, may God help us. I mean, we have a tremendous responsibility and a great privilege to go out into this world, especially in these last days. And folks, let me just say this. We understand as Christians that some very difficult times might be coming. Look, I believe our nation has become so saturated with the gospel, so carnal in its thinking. Hearts have become so hard, it's going to take something pretty strong to break up the fallow ground. Adversity and tribulation does that. I think the church has become so carnal that the only way for God to wake us up and bring revival is to maybe put us through some tribulation, put us through some hard times. If he does, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The door of the gospel is going to be open to a lot of people's hearts. God is going to get their attention. Now, if you understand what your role is, God's going to use you phenomenally. If you think God exists to bless you and make you happy, tribulation doesn't make me happy. It doesn't bless me. So therefore, I'm out of here. I think it's going to weed out a lot of people. Tribulation always weeds out the false from the true and strengthens the true. And I believe God loves America. I believe God wants to reach Americans. But we have become so hard-hearted, so materialistic. He may have to take away our material things to soften our hearts enough where we are open to receiving the... Well, people are open to receiving the gospel. So God help us to then be faithful. May God give us that grace. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you've shown your light into our hearts and we received you, Lord Jesus, and now we are your children, your people. And you've given us the responsibility, Lord, to go into all the world and to share the good news with everyone. Lord, give us grace, no matter how many times we're shot down, to not get discouraged, but to keep sowing the seed. There's good soil out there. There's good hearts. Give us grace to find them. And first and foremost, Lord, give us grace to live out what we claim to believe. Because the first exposure to the gospel that people will get is from the way we live before what we say. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us grace to be faithful in these last days. Lights in the darkness, faithfully proclaiming the word of truth, which alone can save sinners. Thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.